Welcome to Artworks, the weekly podcast from the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Today, a conversation with Rosa Josie about Shakespeare's play, Henry IV, Part One. She directed the current production now running at the Folger Theater in Washington, D.C. This is one of my favorite plays. It's filled with humor, duplicity, and passion. It's a perfect marriage of politics, family, and dysfunction. I spoke with Rosa the week before the play opened, so it was a busy week for her, and I hadn't had a chance to see it. But I did sit in on a tech rehearsal, which focuses on the technical aspects of the production, so I'd have an idea of her approach to the play. So before we get to my conversation with Rosa, I'm going to give a very brief recap of the play. Ready? Okay, here we go. No one is forgetting that Henry IV came to the throne by overthrowing his unstable cousin, Richard II, whom he then had killed. The Percy family had been instrumental in that takeover. But time has passed, things change, and now there's a rebellion against the legitimacy of Henry's rule, led by the Percy family, with their heir, the young, valiant, and impetuous Hotspur, leading the rebel troops. But Henry IV isn't just about power. This is also a play about fathers and sons. And although it's called Henry IV, at the play's center is his son and heir, Hal, who would become the great warrior king, Henry V. But when we meet Hal, he's young, estranged from his father, and apparently dissolute, hanging around a tavern in East Cheap, hardly the best side of town, with thieves and drunkards, under the seeming influence of their leader, Sir John Falstaff, whose utter corruption is marked by humor and a charismatic quick wit. Jack Falstaff is a drunk, a liar, a braggart, and he's endlessly entertaining. And he's only too happy to take Hal under his wing and lead him down the road to perdition, in hopes for great rewards when Hal becomes king. There's no surprise ending here, although the journey is extraordinarily moving and compelling. We know Hal becomes king, and a great one. We see that greatness in Shakespeare's play, Henry V. And in fact, director Rosa Josie first encountered Hal when she directed Henry V for the Oregon Shakespeare Company, and she was eager to direct Henry IV and see Hal in his youth. I often think about how we love to know about our candidates' younger days. We're fascinated with how they led their lives, and we want to wash it all clean. Like, they, <laughs> they had all the right policies from the beginning. They had all the right ideals. They all did good work. Since kindergarten. <laughs> yeah, right? They never smoked pot. They barely drank alcohol. And so to go back and visit Henry V, the, the king that conquers France and, and unites England really for the first time, and see him in his bad boy days has been really fascinating. When you're approaching Henry IV, part one, if I said to you, what do you think this play is, is about? And I know that's very reductive, but... It is reductive, but as a director, you have to have a point of view, right? Mm -hmm. And what I love about Shakespeare is the place will always be larger than me. They'll always be larger than one production. Mm -hmm. So what am I doing for an audience right now? And where am I right now as an artist? And so for me, I was really interested in the coming of age of a young leader, torn between responsibility and freedom, 
and also torn between two father figures. That was really interesting to me too, Hal torn between a sort of cold, authoritarian real father and the playful, larger-than-life friend father. Which is Falstaff. Yes. How are you approaching how duplicity isn't quite the right word, but it kind of is the right word. It's doubleness. Doubleness. How's being this bad boy, but right from the beginning, at the end of his first scene, he reveals another side of himself that scorns Falstaff and the whole gang. And he confides that he's really putting this on so that when he becomes king, he will shine much greater. Yes. And that's something we're still exploring because what is the nature of that reveal? How Machiavellian is that reveal? And how is he in process trying to figure out what he must do and needs to do in order to become a leader? You know, the play, I think, is also very much about growing up and about not wanting to grow up. Falstaff as this lord of misrule who doesn't want to ever grow up in a lot of ways. I think that's right. And Hal needing to grow up and realizing it, but wanting to hold it at bay as long as he can. Speaking of growing up, how do you see Hal's counterpart, Hotspur? Young, impatient, really um, tied to the sense of honor. I'm saying all the generic things first. The thing that I've learned about Hotspur is that he could have been great. I mean, when I see the arc of him, the thing that I'm struck by is that as a model for a leader, he has a journey where we see a glimpse that he might have been a great leader himself, but both of them can't be king. Only one can be king. So that duel at the end is not good against evil, and you know, between oh, Hal and no, Hotspur, no, no, no. right? Like it's two equals in some way that realizes that one of them has to die. It's like two different visions of kingship, yeah. though, that sort of Machiavellian Hal and Hotspur, who's that medieval chivalric knight. Yeah, and who is so tied to honor. You know, the different versions of honor in the play or the different approaches to honor, and and Hotspur's is tied to personal affront and loyalty. Don't dishonor me. This is a dishonor to who I am. But he's also a person of action. He's also a person that's decisive, but not so great because he makes decisions before he has actually any plans. (laughs) And he also, for a man of action, he talks a lot. Oh, yes. Oh, my God, these long, long speeches. And I'm captivated by him. Yes. I mean, I am in love with Hotspur. Yes. That's just the truth. Well, he's quite charming also, right? In in performance also, you realize how funny he can be. He's he's captivating. So there's a play about fathers and sons and dueling versions of fathers and dueling versions of sons and dueling versions of the future of who the next leader of England will be. Shakespeare is so good at giving different shadings of right and wrong. Yes. You know, the rebels have a cause. I mean, they have a point that they're making to Henry, right? And I think that's what's also fascinating about this play, is that the whole way that Henry IV got to the crown is questionable. 
hugely questionable. I mean, like, I just made that sound like a little <laughs> thing, right? A whole play was it's, written about it. A whole him. play <laughs> was written about it. But so the question of rightful rule and, and the idea that he had Richard II murdered. So, and, and I'm really struck by the Percys put Henry IV on the throne, and then they had certain expectations of what that would be like mm-hmm. once he was on the throne. And then he didn't deliver, and they couldn't control him. And that feels very contemporary to me. (laughs) So a lot of what I'm looking at when I'm analyzing the history plays is thinking about what are the things that are hitting me in terms of what's going on in the world. And that really hit me through the play, is how much the Percys talked about what they did for this ungrateful king and what you do to put someone in power and what your expectations are about what you will get, which is also what Falstaff says to Hal, right? There'll be no more hangings, right? Rob me the exchequer. I'm going to get special treatment. Banish everyone else. Don't banish me. Tell me about your attraction to Shakespeare and, and why you, you obviously gravitate towards directing his plays. I've always loved Shakespeare since I was in middle school. So I think I got turned on by, as many young people do, by an incredible English teacher who had us read the plays, Phil Clymer. And I just really fell in love with the plays. But then, you know, when I first got out of undergraduate, out of college, I felt like I don't have the skill, I don't know how to do it as a director. And then I realized that I just had to learn the skill, right? It's learnable. (laughs) <laughs> like it's not just something that's gifted to you, although you you can have an affinity for it definitely. But there's a technique, and so I just think the plays, as I said, are so much larger than who I am as an artist, and they go to the extremes of human behavior, the depths of despair and the heights of celebration and joy. They are so full of life, and the language is gorgeous, but it's also muscular and very naturalistic in how we actually speak. Iambic pentameter is the rhythm of our heartbeat. It's the way that we um, move through the world. It doesn't have to just be about high. So the depth and breadth of the plays is what really drew me and the challenge of them. As a director, I I just love difficult things. (laughs) I really love that the plays are sort of out of my reach. I find it disquieting that so many people at all levels believe they won't understand Shakespeare or that Shakespeare can't speak to them. That's the American education system. It's the way that we put Shakespeare up on a pedestal or the way also that we're socialized to believe that Shakespeare we can't understand it. Like that happened to me a little bit also, right? Like that, oh, you you really can't understand it. It's old, archaic language. You know, the history plays, they're about medieval English history. Why should we care as in a contemporary American audience? So I, I think that it's really up to contemporary productions to make them relevant to us. Not make them, find the relevance, uncover the relevance, right? Because they are relevant to us. I wouldn't do this if I didn't think they were relevant. As someone who loves classics, I'm always thinking about what do these plays have to say to a contemporary American audience today? Not in the sense of dumbing them down or you know, giving everybody cell phones, for, for instance. It's 
why do these plays matter for us? And for me, the history plays are about politics, power, and leadership, and war. And I can geek out over the history in them as well as the next nerd. I love researching the family trees and looking at how it's all one big dysfunctional family. It's part, that's part of what I love about Roman and Greek gods. It's like, ah, family dysfunction right. writ large. So to me, the, the history plays especially are so much about how the personal affects the political and vice versa, which is very contemporary. I was curious. I sat in on a tech rehearsal and basically three scenes, and I was there for three hours. And <laughs> Welcome I, to tech. <laughs> yeah. And I know Sunday night when I go and see the play, it'll be two and a half hours, yeah. more or less. <laughs> Tell me about your prep. Tell me when you knew you were going to do this play, how you began to do research and what that research entailed, and, and just kind of walk me through how we end up seeing what we're going to be seeing on the stage of the Folger. So I just read the play a lot. That's the first thing I do. I've done Henry V. I've done Richard II. I've done an adaptation of the Henry VI's and Richard III. So the Henry IV's part one and two are the missing link, as it were. So in terms of the research into the other plays, I have a familiarity with them, having done those. But I always start with the text. I just do a deep dive into the text. I spend a lot of time with my lexicons, my Shakespeare lexicons, just understanding all the language. And then I cut the play. I spend some time cutting the play because I sort of do a first pass and then come back at it. Often if I'm working with a dramaturg, I'll give them a cut of it and then they'll give me feedback because the cutting of the play is the shaping of the story that you're telling as a director. No two productions of Henry IV are the same. Simply at the first start of what do you include and what do you not include. And then I go into a design process with designers. And so that was, you know, starting this past January. So yeah, I've been living with this play for about, you know, nine months at least. And so I've read Shakespeare's Kings and a lot of those, the background books before. But I do like to read writings about the period and especially about how Shakespeare is using history. And then I voraciously read all the notes in the text that I have and doing a lot of analysis of the play. You were in tech with us, so you saw a lot of lights and sound, but I'm very much a text-based director. All of those ideas come from First and foremost, what's in the text and what are people saying to each other? What are the themes? What, what is the nature of the language? You know, the life of East Cheap versus the life of court as revealed through prose versus verse in the play. How much time do you spend rehearsing? The actual time of being in rehearsal is so much less than the time you spend pre-production. Yeah, right? By think. the time you get to rehearsal, the, in the American theater, you have three weeks and then tech and then previews. And then bye-bye. Yeah. And that is a very short amount of time to put together a massive classical text like Henry IV, Part One. You do all this research, and then you come and you meet your cast. Talk about that process of being open to the cast's ideas and how, in some ways, you have to let that research inform the way you're looking at this play, but not be rigid within it. I love working with actors. 
My favorite part of the whole directing process is being in rehearsal and working with actors. I love all of it. I love working with designers. I love being in tech. I love all of those things. But being in a rehearsal room, parsing through a text, uncovering a moment, discovering things with actors, that's what gets me up in the morning and makes me want to go to work. So I want actors who have ideas and big, bold ideas and bring me things, and then who aren't precious about it. And I try not to be precious about my ideas, too. I come in, hopefully, with a strong point of view and a vision for the work. And then you have to have all that preparation and then be ready for that to all get molded by who's in the room and what happens in the room, and to just have an eye for editing it so that I'm looking and hopefully saying that choice makes sense, this choice doesn't make sense, and always keeping story in mind. I have to be willing to let go of an idea that I've deeply held if it doesn't work. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Like, why would I be stubborn about that? That's not going to create the best art. The sum of what we're creating is greater than ourselves because the play is greater than us. Tell me about the process of selecting the cast. So casting happened, I want to say it started in March and then it continued. We cast here in D.C. and then we cast also in New York. I came back in, I want to say it was around May. So that process takes a while, took a while also. I knew Ed was Falstaff. Ed Giro, yes. Ed Giro was coming in as, as Falstaff. Okay, here's a quick aside. Edward Giro, who is an acclaimed actor, just so well-versed in Shakespeare, He's played Falstaff, and I actually saw the play after I spoke to Rosa, and he is brilliant. He's brilliant. This is a role he was born to play. His Jack Falstaff is smart, hilariously funny, sometimes touching, and not afraid to be appalling. It's a great performance. Okay, back to Rosa. In terms of casting classical plays, I think very much that the people on stage should reflect the people in in the community. So I'm very much committed to diverse casting in classical plays and for that to become normal in classical work, because that, I think, is the future of how these works will live for next generations. I think young people of color need to see themselves on stage in order to imagine themselves on stage and to seek a life in the theater. And then for these stories to be represented by the people who look like the community that they're being presented for. And you also had women playing parts that traditionally are played by men. A couple of the Dukes. Worcester and Vernon and Poins in East Cheap. And that's right, and Poins as well are played by women. And I know that is a commitment that you have. You're a founder of Upstart Crow Collective, which is a theater company that puts on classical work and all the roles are played by women. Yes. So Upstart Crow Collective started in 2006 and was really the brainchild of two actors, Kate Wisniewski and Betsy Schwartz, my co-founders. It was their idea. They approached me to ask me to direct the first production and we didn't think we were making a company. We were just creating opportunities. They were sort of frustrated by the lack of roles for women in classical theater, and they love classical theater. And and women have incredible chops in classical theater, and they get aged out of the canon. There aren't as many opportunities for them, so instead of complaining about it, they decided to do something about it and produce an all-female work. And doing that work 
really opened my eyes to all kinds of inequities in terms of gender in classical work. And so it, be, it has become a real passion for me and commitment. So when we do all female work, we keep the gender of the characters as is. It's just flipping the convention yeah. that existed in Shakespeare's time of all male work. So when I do more conventionally cast shows, I take the roles that are male and I, I actually flip the gender to make them female. There's so many ways to create equity and diversity in the work that I don't think there's just one size fits all. So yes, I'm, I, I was interested in creating more opportunities for great classical actors like Naomi Jacobson to perform in these works. So taking a major role like Worcester, a powerful enemy of the king, and to give that role in that text to a woman is really invigorating for me and exciting and thrilling to have a woman with that kind of agency in a Shakespeare play. You've done some unusual plays for Upstart Crow, like King John. It really isn't often produced. This is not your usual Shakespeare play. That was our (laughs) first production. I think because Kate and Betsy and I, um, my co-founders and I, we're interested in politics. Since it was our first time doing the work, we didn't come in with any um, preconceptions. We, we didn't say, we're going to do this. It was an experiment. What will this be like? How will this affect our approach to gender in the play? Um, and so we thought it would be interesting to, to start with a, not a play that everyone knew that was really familiar, because then we sort of had more freedom, right? right? Because we all have our preconceived notions Ex- of what, what Falstaff is like. Right. And also, I love the play. I mean, I've literally heard people who do a lot of Shakespeare say, what a terrible play. And I just go, what? That's an amazing play. So it's also part of my taste. Like I said, I like difficult work. Yeah, well, you also (laughs) did Titus Andronicus. Hello. (laughs) Among the many awful things that happen in that play, Titus actually bakes two villainous men in a pie and feeds them to their equally vile mother. I know. That was our second. It's kind of like, what's the what's the sort of craziest play you could do with all, a bunch of women? Titus Andronicus. But yes, it's audacious, right? And we're called Upstart Crow because we're being audacious. But at the same time, um, we chose King John also because we were really interested in leadership and power and women in power. We didn't choose one of the existing gender-bending plays. We wanted to look at what it meant to give women really strong roles and roles of leadership and what it would look like. And also, I have to admit, I take great joy in taking a play, a history play that's usually a showcase for a whole lot of men and maybe two women. So to take the stage and fill it with powerful, talented, intelligent, skilled women, that excites me. (laughs) And I will remember the most thrilling thing for me on on that production was in the curtain call when I saw, I think it was 14 or 16 women standing to take a curtain call in a Shakespeare play. That blew me away. How did you get into theater? I acted a little bit in high school, like deep dark in everybody's past, right? (laughs) And when I went to university, I was actually pre-med, and I was a psychology major, and I continued to do theater, stage managed, and then I took a directing class, 
and I fell in love with directing. And then I dropped being pre-med, and I continued to be a psychology major, and I continued to do a whole lot of theater and, and realized that in my junior year, if I took a few more classes, I could actually double major. And then my senior year, I spent studying abroad my fall semester in London, saw about 35 plays in two months, and directed a play there also. I just felt like if I don't do this, it will sort of be a what if in my life. And it was something I was really passionate about and also because I didn't know if I could do it. It was a risk and I felt like not that being a doctor is easy. Being a doctor is hard, but the path was really clear. If I studied hard and I went to med school and I worked hard, I could be a doctor. And there was a, a path of success that was clear to me. And I did not know if there was a path of success. And that was both terrifying, but also felt like, well, that's the thing I have to do because I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can make a life in it. So I decided not to pursue a PhD in clinical psychology, although I feel like I practice clinical psychology quite. I'm sure, I'm sure it comes in very handy. Sometimes. That's sort of the quick story of my path into theater. Did you ever think about film? Was it always theater? It's always been theater. That's really interesting because, um, of course, I've had classmates and colleagues who've gone on to much more lucrative careers in film. And I love film. And I, I actually, sometimes when I'm talking to designers or talking to actors, I'll say, so the equi- this is the equivalent of a close-up or this is a cut, like so like the language of film. But I think while I actually love specifically theater is because it's ephemeral, it, because you can't recreate it exactly the same way all the time so it's a living breathing art form and because anything's possible in theater I feel like there's nothing you can't do if you ask the audience to engage their imagination what are you doing after this I teach at Seattle University so I'll go back and teach a class on directing and I direct usually once a year there but next I'll be directing bring down the house which is an adaptation of the Henry VI plays that was created for Upstart Crow Collective that we will be partnering with Oregon Shakespeare Festival to do. And I go into rehearsal for that in January, and it will open in March and run all year with 16 women telling the story of the War of the Roses with taiko drumming and lots of physical abstract fight choreography as well as some wicked broadswords. It sounds fabulous. It's going to be amazing. It's as it is like going into rehearsal for these history plays. I think sometimes it's like going into battle yourself. <laughs> you have you have to be prepared beyond belief and like have a plan and then be ready to improvise yeah, at the same time. Well, Rosa, thank you. Thank you for giving me your time. I know this is a busy week for you. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Anytime I can sort of just talk about my love for Shakespeare. And I'm right there. <laughs> I'm, I'm so happy to. Thank you. Thank you. That was Rosa Josie. She directed Henry IV Part One, which runs at the Folger through October 13th. You can find out more information at folger.edu. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. You can subscribe to Artworks wherever you get your podcasts, so please do. And leave us a rating on Apple because it helps people to find us. 
For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.